All right, good morning, everyone. It's warm in here. I don't know if those windows are open or not, but open those windows. We foolishly turned off the air conditioning thinking it was going to be wintertime, and it's not. So yeah, we'll leave the doors open, and uh, we will get through. Uh, We're continuing our series on Philippians, and... um, I'm going to do the text in two parts, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, which is the title, Work Out Your Salvation, and, um, and then the second part, which is some of the working out of that salvation in the people of Philippi, and uh, in uh, verses uh, 14 to 18. And when we come to this text as, as believers, as readers, we sometimes get confused because the Apostle Paul, as we know, is the great proponent of salvation by faith alone. You are saved by faith alone. And so then we come here and he says, each of you should work out your own salvation. And we pause and we wonder, what is Paul suddenly talking about? And so we get concerned. And uh, so we need to work out what Paul is asking us to work out uh, in order to understand what he's saying. Because I don't think Paul forgot what he just wrote uh, a couple of verses before, that our salvation is from God. And so, as we come to Philippians 2, as we come to this text, we're going to kind of dive right in, and we're going to kind of unpack and understand what does it mean for us as Christians to work out our own salvation. And I'll just pray before we begin. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to study it. Uh, Thank you that it gives us challenges like this uh, that force us to stop and think and meditate and consider what your apostle is telling us. And so we know that by your Holy Spirit we can understand this. I just pray for your Holy Spirit's understanding in each of our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. So Philippians 2, 12 to 13 begins this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we have here maybe one of the most direct statements of the paradox of God's sovereignty and human will. And Paul does not shy away from stating what appears to be a paradox that we work and God works and it's his will. And the first thing that I want us to look at here as we consider this text, going into this, reading it, understand this. Paul intends this text as an encouragement. He begins, therefore, therefore, as because of the actions of Jesus that we just exalted in the Christ hymn, right? Be- because everything that Jesus has done, therefore, this is what you're going to do. Because of Jesus, this is an encouragement. And then he says, my beloved. Paul's like trying to be encouraging here. You're not people that I hate. You're not people that I'm upset with. You're my beloved. So because of Christ and because I love you, you know, these words are for your encouragement. As you have always obeyed. I know that you're obedient people. I know that you have a track record of success, that you have a foundation of victory. So keep on running whether I'm there or not. Everything about the introduction to this part of the text is Paul wanting to be encouraging. And then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And at that point, as we read it in modern times, we think this is no longer encouraging. This is us having to work and work fearfully and trembling. And we might get confused and we might get discouraged. Even though Paul clearly intends this to be an encouragement, it doesn't land on us that way. 
So we have to ask the obvious question, what does he mean, work out your salvation, and why does confusion creep in? And it just sounds weird coming from Paul because he's the champion of the gospel reality that salvation is not by our works. As he says in, for instance, Romans 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's very natural at this point to say, which one is it, Paul? Is it the one who works in fear and trembling, or is it the one who does not work? But Paul doesn't get confused. He doesn't miss the truth. He says in verse 13 immediately, for it is God who works in you, which is similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 6. Remember in in Philippians chapter 1, he said, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Now he says here that you need to work out your salvation, but it's God who works in you. It's actually the very same phrase, the one who works in you to bring it to completion, the God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's no reason to believe here that Paul is saying anything different or introducing a new idea to salvation. Paul is saying the same thing he's always said about salvation. God began the work, he's going to complete it, but our participation in the works of faith are part of that saving activity of God. So how are we to understand verse 12 then? What is working out our salvation? What does Paul want the Philippians to understand? And and what we need is a more holistic sort of New Testament meaning of what the word salvation means. And And the word in the Greek here is soteria. And when the New Testament uses or speaks of salvation to the believer, it's not using it in a discrete technical term that we tend to use it today. So this is part of the issue with reading an ancient text with modern ears and with modern eyes. In modern Christianity, it's a little bit ironic, actually, that we've created this problem precisely because of the necessity to more accurately understand that Paul is articulating this paradox of God's will and our work. We have, in our modern times, tend to be more precise in how we use the word salvation. And so we normally use now the word salvation, to more narrowly mean our justification, our being brought into right relationship with God, made right with him by the exchanging of our sin for righteousness by the work of Jesus on the cross. And now that's how we use salvation, and so that makes this sentence confusing. And now we normally use the word sanctification when we're talking about the evidence or the works of faith that follow salvation. But the reality is, is that in Scripture... Salvation, soteria, is used more broadly to mean all of the works of God in our salvation. The biblical concept salvation is not as restricted. It doesn't used as narrowly as we use it. And so, first we see it's used to say, first of all, salvation in the New Testament, that a Christian salvation is done. It's finished, it's accomplished on the cross by God at some point in our past. So we have Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. See, Paul's teaching the same thing we all believe salvation to be. By faith that God has done for us in the past when we believed. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So salvation, soteria, is something that God has done in the past, not by our works. But we also see in the New Testament that salvation is also something that is still a process that is going to happen. 
Romans 5, 9 to 10, for instance, says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. So here the Bible is very specific to say the justification has taken place. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So salvation, soteria in a biblical sense is something that is still to happen as well. And so we just have to understand this. When Paul talks about working out our salvation, we have to understand how the word salvation is used in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 3.15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. So it's a future thing. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so what we have to understand here is that salvation means the entire course of our calling. And John Calvin said, the term includes all the means by which God accomplishes the perfection he has divinely chosen us for. So now just rewind a little bit. You remember I said, Paul intends this text to be an encouragement to the Philippians. He wants them to be encouraged. And I think what he has in mind here when he says, work out your own salvation, he's saying, I want you to be encouraged by the fact that salvation accomplishes perfection in our lives in the past, in our justification, it's accomplishing something in our lives now, and it is working out towards something in the future that is our salvation. In other words, he wants the Philippians to experience the whole means of salvation, the whole meaning of salvation, not just one narrow aspect of it. And Paul is shortly going to allude to the nation of Israel in, the, in, in part two of this message. He's going to allude to the nation of Israel. And so in a similar way, we can think of Israel being saved by God when the lamb's blood was placed over the door at Passover and they did not die. And and we think, okay, Israel is saved, but they were rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery. But then we also remember that their salvation was ongoing, that, that God continued to save them through the desert and even into the promised land. Salvation is the total and complete work of God that's initiated by him that it's still taking place in the world. And so there is a working out of salvation that Paul wants us to understand. And now, because biblical salvation necessarily brings with it the appearance of righteousness in our lives, then it follows that righteous activity must be part of our salvation. It must be part of our process. And this is Paul's encouragement to the Philippians. He says, I want you to work out your salvation. I want righteous activity to be a part of your life as, you, as righteous activity is part of salvation. It's part of the process that God is accomplishing in your life to save you. And as Christians, we need to remember this. We need to remember and never forget the juxtaposition of verses 9 and 10 in Ephesians 2 because this is what gets to the heart of the matter. This is the, the paradox that we hold in tension. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this is what Paul is emphasizing in Philippians 2. He's he's emphasizing this tension and this contrast that we are saved not as a result of works, but we are saved for works. And therefore, we work out our salvation in that way. 
What he's basically emphasizing in the context of the Philippian church, and we talked about this the last two messages, is that a believer's personal and internal salvation will inevitably take the form of corporate and visible obligations or works within the Christian community in the world. Remember, he's been teaching these Philippians and teaching us to stand firm, to be steadfast, to be humble, to be in unity, to be of one mind, right? And so Paul is emphasizing the corporate outward reality of righteousness or corporate invisible works within the Christian community that is a result of our personal and internal salvation. It's a call from Paul, an encouragement, remember, an encouragement to live like Jesus lived. And in that context, it makes perfect sense for Paul to say here, and and I'll paraphrase here what Paul is basically now saying to the Philippians, do the work of your own personal salvation among yourselves and do it reverently, do it seriously with fear and trembling because it's God who is willing and working in you. So, So Paul says to this Philippian church that's feeling the persecution, that is feeling the pressure, that is feeling the cracks appearing in their unity. Paul encourages them to unity and humility and like-mindedness and other-centeredness. And then he says, do the work of your own personal salvation among yourselves and do that righteous work reverently and seriously. Why? Because it's God who's working in you. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is the God of the universe who is working in you. And so do that work seriously. When you see this taking place in a church, when you step back and you look at a church and you see people esteeming others more highly than themselves and humbling themselves and thinking of the interest of others ahead of themselves, people who are very different from each other, people who would normally never communicate to each other, never associate with others, but they all come together in a church and they are esteeming one another and like-minded and glorifying God and sharing the gospel and arm-in-arm in ministry, you should be in awe of that because that is God at work, is what Paul is saying fearfully and trembling, reverently and seriously. Be in awe of it happening in your life when you can set down the things that you care so passionately about and care more about other people than your own things. That's God at work in you doing that. Now, I have a little example. We got the kids here. So if the kids want to come up here, I'll let the kids maybe grades one to five if they want to come up here. I need you to help me work something out. And maybe the adults will learn something too. I have an example of what it is to work out our salvation and what it might mean. You guys can come up here. You can even sit on the stage if you want, or you can sit down there or stand down there. Now, do you guys know any math? You guys learn math in school? Yeah, come on up here. You know math? Okay, sit down. You can just sit down wherever, stand there. That's fine. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a math equation up here, and I hope I know the answer. Uh, so I'm going to do like... 3 squared. <laughs> it's getting, getting complicated already. <laughs> Minus, I'll keep it simple here. 1 plus 1 times 2. All right? Equals. So now I have, I have a math equation... And the teacher gives you a math equation, and they tell you to do what to the math equation? What do you have to do? you got to work it out. Okay, now you guys might not all, like, who knows? 
He knows. So some of this math, some of you might know, and some of this math, some of you won't know. So you might have to work together to work it out. So do you know what 3 squared is? You don't know what 3 squared is. Oh, but that's okay. Don't worry. Do you know what 3 squared is? 6. No, it's not 6. Does somebody else know what 3 squared is? Yes? I'm not, I don't know. We're not at the answer yet. We're just at 3 squared. Does anybody know what 3 squared is? I know. What's 3 squared? 9. 9. All right. Good job. Now, what do brackets mean? Do you have to do the stuff in the brackets? Yeah, what's that? What's... Um, you do it first before anything else. Anything else? Okay, so we should have done that. What's that? What? Two. Okay, so you helped out with two. That's good. So two. Now, what's the order of operations? Does anybody know bed mass? Yeah, what's the order of operations? It's brackets, it's division. Multiplication, addition, and subtraction. Exactly. Okay. So we did the exponent, and we did the brackets. So we got to do the multiplication, don't we? So now we got to do this in bed mass, right? We got to do two times two. What's that? You know what two times two is? What's that? Four. Good job. Okay. Four. So we got four here. So we got four. So we got nine minus four times two. Oh no! 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 Sorry, I did that wrong. Man, get it right, man. Oh. Nine. Four times two. Yeah, we got to do that next, right? So it's so it's nine minus four. That's right. Equals. Somebody got the answer there. I heard it. Five. Five. All right. You you guys solved this. So what? So we worked out the equation, right? Okay, but here's, here's the lesson now. Pay attention. <laughs> Adults pay attention too. Who gave you the equation? The teacher did. The teacher gave you the equation. Who, who taught you and who gave you all the skills to work out the equation? The teacher did. Yeah, yeah. And if you couldn't know the answer yourself, who gave you the people around you to help you with the equation? Because Jesus is always a good answer. <laughs> so the teacher gave you the equation. The teacher gave you the skills to work it out. Now, is, do we already know the, is the answer already in the equation? Does the answer ever change? The answer is always five, isn't it? Even though you didn't know the answer was five. And who knows the answer? The teacher knows the answer. Even before you solved it, the teacher knew the answer. Now, here's another one. This is important now. If you make a mistake like I did doing this, if you make a mistake while you're working it out, does it change the answer? No, the answer stays the same. You can make a mistake, but this formula always has that answer, even if you make a mistake while you're working it out. So you see, God has given us the equation of our salvation. The answer to our salvation is guaranteed. It's always going to be the answer at the end. And God, even though we might make mistakes while we're working out this, it won't change the answer at the end. 
because God has the answer. You're saved. But God has given us the job and the skills and the tools and the people to work out our salvation while we are living. And so we work out our salvation, and we may make mistakes, and we may not get it perfect along the way, but regardless of what we do along the way, the answer is already guaranteed because it's built into the equation that God has given us. And so when you are saved by God, you have given the equation, God asks you to work it out, but not work it out because he doesn't know the answer, because he knows the answer. And he asks you to work it out, not because if you make a mistake, you're going to get a different answer at the end, but he wants you to work it out because he's giving you the tools and the gifts and the people to work out your salvation. So you can be a part of the total picture of salvation. And in the end, we know that the teacher has the answer, and the answer will never change. All right, you guys, that's how working out our salvation works. I think maybe the adults learned a little bit more than you did this morning. Okay, you guys, go sit down. (laughs) I'll get rid of that later. So hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully as we approach working out our salvation, we'll understand that the answer doesn't change. The final answer is always the same, even though God has given us... Some of us have got really complex equations to work out in our lives. We've got really tough problems to solve. But God has the answer in mind, and if we make mistakes along the way, our salvation still comes to the same solution at the end. And this is what God has done. He's given us the answer. If we trust Jesus and set our hearts on him, then God has made us his children. That's the final answer. We are children of God. We're rescued. We're saved. But he's also prepared good works for us to do. He's prepared a life of righteousness for us to live out. And it takes time. It's a long math equation to work out the life and the good works of righteousness he's prepared for us. And he's teaching us how to work out our equation as we go. As we make mistakes, the teacher comes along and corrects our mistakes and teaches us how we live out this life of righteousness. And he's given us people around us. If we don't know the answer, maybe they know the answer and we can learn from them. But the answer never changes, even if we make mistakes. At the end, God's sovereignty has provided the answer, and God's sovereignty never changes. In Philippians 1.6, Paul's already told us, He who began a good work, giving you the righteous life to live out, that's the, that's the good work that God started in you. He gave you the righteous life to live out. He will bring that work to completion. We will receive the right answer at the end by his doing, finally, not by our doing. And so we see in these verses, Paul's repeating his frequent emphasis from 1.6 and 129 and Ephesians 2 and Romans 5 and Romans 9 and Galatians 2 and all through the New Testament. We're told over and over and over again, our salvation is entirely by faith, the will and the work of God. And yet our redemption, the plan of our redemption, the course of our rescue will include righteous works for us to participate in as we live out our salvation together as a people of God. And the people of God is an important phrase there, because that brings us to part two, which I can definitely do in 10 minutes. <laughs> Philippians 2:14 to 18. 
He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run the la- in, or in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what's, what's, what's Paul's encouragement here? What is Paul telling the Philippians? You remember I said people of God. He says here's children of God. Who are the people of God? Who are the children of God? Anybody know from the Old Testament? Israel? Why am I making that connection? Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is a not-so-subtle reference to the people of Israel in the desert. After their salvation, before they arrive at the promised land, God's people, God's children were a grumbling people. And, and his readers would not miss this, okay? When he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, people understand that this is a reference to Israel during their process of being rescued from Egypt. He's making a direct comparison between the Philippian church and all Christian believers who have their salvation from God and who now must walk in that salvation as God has called them to be an example to their generation. And the people of Israel, who God saved from Israel and gave the law, and notice that God gave Israel the law after he saved them. He saved them, not by any works of the law that they did, not by any righteousness of their own. He saved his people out of Israel, and then he gave them the law or the instruction on how to live as righteous people of God. He saved them out of Egypt and gave them the instruction, gave them the equation in order that they might be an example to the generations and the pagan nations around them. Just as Paul says here in Philippians, you will be a light to the generation that you live in. We see this over and over and over again. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Exodus 34, 10, Isaiah 42, 6. He says, I, the Lord, have called unto you in righteousness and have taken hold of your hand and submitted you as the people's covenant as a light unto the nations. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, you need to understand, I have called you to these good works of righteousness. I've given you the instruction. I've given you the Torah so that you can be an example, a light to the dark nations around you. And now Paul says here, and this is why it's obvious, that this, this is exactly what he's talking about. When he talks about grumbling and disputing, when he talks about being a light, this is what Paul is saying. Because to the Philippians, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without a blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. See, Paul, Paul's making this connection. He says, I don't want you to be like Israel. I don't want you to be grumbling and complaining after you've been giving your righteous works to do. After they received the instruction on Sinai, they went into the desert and they complained all the way to the promised land. And they were meant to be, God told them, you are the nation of Israel. I've dropped you down here in the Middle East in the midst of all these pagan nations. You are to be a light to them by following my righteous works. And now Paul is saying to the Philippians, you are to be a righteous people in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what what we're supposed to be doing. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Now, oh, did I miss something there? Sorry. I just want to make two more references. 
The other thing we have to remember is this is following on the heels of the Christ hymn. And so Paul, again, as an encouragement, therefore, because of the Christ hymn, because Jesus shone his light into our world, the church, therefore, follows his example and command and shine each as our own congregation in our generation to this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul says to the Philippians, You guys shine. God gave us Jesus to shine in our hearts. Now you shine in your generation. And Jesus himself gave a command to his disciples to shine. You remember in Matthew 5. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give it light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you see the theme here. Paul's encouraging the Philippian church. He's saying, let your light shine. God has prepared good works for you to do, so work out your salvation in awe and wonder because God is working in you. And don't be like Israel, don't be grumbling and complaining, but let your light shine. Let your righteous works be the lamp, the light that shines and gives glory to our Father who is in heaven. So big picture, what's Paul saying here? The church is both the continuity of Israel and yet different than Israel. The church is new Israel. Paul says in Romans and Galatians that those that are of Abraham are of Abraham by faith. And like Israel, we are rescued from God. And like Israel, we're still living among kingdoms that are dark and far from God. Not always literal political kingdoms, but kingdoms and tribes of disobedience and rebellion, whatever form they take, the occultists, the greedy, the violent, the criminal, the mocking, the self-righteous. There are all kinds of kingdoms of darkness that surround the people of God, and we live in the midst of what Paul says is a crooked and twisted generation, and we are called not to hate them or make war with them, but to be light and life to those people, to shine the love of God among those people, Paul says. Yes, they're in darkness, but they're not in darkness for us to hate them. They're in darkness for us to love them and give light to them. And that calling will be impossible for the church if we can't work out our salvation. If we can't even work out our salvation amongst ourselves, if we can't perform our own works of righteousness here in the church by the right treatment of each other and humility and esteeming others more highly, then then we'll never be able to be a light to the world. And so Paul's encouragement to this church in Philippi, he's like, work out your salvation so that you can be this light that that God called Israel to be and that God calls us to be in the world. And we've been given a great aid to all of this in the word of life. It's the word of life that we hold firmly to and we don't stray from it. We align tightly to the word of life. We line up with it. We stick with it. We never release it. We hold fast to the word of life, which is scripture. And that's why we make such a big deal about the Bible here. Because it's only by holding fast to the word of life that this is possible. And then he says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or label in vain. Just as before Paul said, make my joy complete, he again appeals personally to the Philippians. He says, make me proud of you. Prove I didn't waste my labor among you. That it wasn't for nothing. That it was... That that's the important thing, that you are going on from faith to faith and that your salvation is getting worked out. Make me proud. That's the most important thing. That's what's going to make my joy complete. That's what I want to know, that I didn't run in vain, that you are succeeding in these righteous works. He even goes on to say, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What does he mean by this? He just keeps leaning into these pictures of Israel. 
Don't grumble in the desert, right? Be a light the way they were meant to be a light. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, he just, he just keeps leaning into this analogy to Israel. The drink offering was called for by God both morning and evening with the burnt offering and the grain offerings in Exodus 29.40. The, the drink offering was part of the sweet aroma that pleased God. It was a daily offering. Even as we pray to God, give us each day our daily bread, the drink offering that Paul is talking about was a daily offering. So he's saying, even if I have to be poured out daily as an offering on your offering of faith, on the things that you're doing, your works are an offering, my works are an offering, and even if I have to be poured out, I want to know that I didn't run in vain. Most importantly, we know that it's what Jesus called his own sacrifice, a drink offering. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And later, at the end of his life, Paul will say it has finally happened to him. It's actually going to happen. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my death has come in 2 Timothy 4.6. So as Paul writes to the Philippians here, he's concluding, he's saying, even if I am doing and suffering, even if all that I am doing and suffering means I end up dead, Even if I am the final sacrifice that's poured out in my death on top of your works of faith, which God sees as a sacrifice, I'm still glad and I will rejoice that you are saved and my work was fruitful. And you should feel the same way about me. Even if you end up pouring your life out unto death for my ministry, you should rejoice because ministry is going forward. Romans 12.1 says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what is all this then? This is is Paul's encouragement to the people of Philippi, to the Philippian church, right? He says you've got to work out your salvation in awe and reverence. Don't be like the people of Israel. Don't grumble and complain. You you are in the midst of dark kingdoms the same way they are, and you need to shine like light, and you are only going to shine like light if you hold fast to the word of God and if you are able to work out your righteous works by means of Jesus and by means of his word. And so we take this text to heart then as an encouragement, not not meant to confuse us or discourage us, but to give the church and every believer a very practical exhortation, a boost of confidence following as it does the Christ hymn. This is Paul's natural conclusion. It's his natural application of therefore. The only response that Paul can imagine a disciple can have to the glory of Christ's humility and sacrifice that that we just talked about last week in the Christ hymn, the only response that Paul can imagine could come from that, the only therefore that is there for Jesus, is for us to follow him in his humility making their own lives a sacrifice to their own generation so that they can shine like lights in the darkness, just as the light of Jesus shone in our hearts. Not because working out our salvation can add anything to the work Jesus has already done. Not because working out our salvation is necessary somehow, that we need to achieve some sort of righteous bar and jump over it to be saved. Not at all. Only that it, mean, it is the means by which we participate in the ongoing saving work that God is doing in the world. We identify with and we confirm our belonging to Jesus and we please God as our righteous work is a pleasing sacrifice that brings him glory. See, God, God has a big picture of salvation. And yes, it's our justification by faith alone in Christ alone and the work of Jesus' work on the cross alone. That's part of it. 
But God, just like with Israel, has a much bigger plan for all the rest of the world and all the other kingdoms and all the other people around us. And he says we participate in that saving work. As we work out our salvation, we will be an example. We will be light and life to those dark places around us. And God's redeeming work of all nations will take place through us in our righteous works. That's incredible to think about. That's the encouragement that Paul wants us to see here. He wants his Philippian church to know, even if you are poured out as a drink offering, even unto death, it won't be in vain. God is working out his saving plan. He's got the equation. He's got the answer. It's set in time and space and history. It's not going to change. We can make our mistakes, and he'll correct us and bring us along, but the answer is the same because God is sovereign even as we work. His sovereign plan of salvation. That's Paul's encouragement. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that it is an encouragement, that even when we hit these confusing texts that kind of take us off guard, that that just encourages us to dig in and dive into what your apostle is saying and what you're telling us through your spirit. Father, thank you that we are caught up in this great saving, redeeming work that you are doing. And so that we would work out our salvation reverently and in awe because it is the God of the universe who is working his saving plan through his people, the church. Just as he began in Israel and began with the law, he is completing with Christ Jesus and completing with us. You can't contemplate that and not feel the reverence and the awe and the profound significance of it. So, Father, we thank you again for this encouragement. Help each of us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. In Christ's name, amen.